Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes, and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Jolly, bringing you the best of my Times Radio show. You can listen live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1, on your DAB radio, on your smart speaker, or download the Times Radio app, where you can also listen to all of the Times' podcasts, including Red Box, but you're listening to that, so that's a bit better. Right, coming up on today's episode, we go back to 1984, the extraordinary moment the IRA tried to assassinate the British Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher. There's a new book out which tells it is an extraordinary account of how uh, the, the bomb plot uh, was conceived, executed, and then its main perpetrator caught. Uh, that's coming up in our big thing at just a moment. But first, as we always do on a Tuesday, it's time for these two. In a world of politics without the boring bits, get ready for blockbuster debate on Times Radio. One is the wise voice of experience. The other, the young genius learning from the master. Together they are Finkelstein and Zeffman. Daniel Finkelstein and Henry Zeffman on Times Radio. Yes, it's the Del Boy and Rodney of political analysis. Uh, we say very good morning to uh, Daniel Finkelstein. Morning, Daddy. Good morning, good morning. I had a very good morning to Henry Zephyr, buddy, Henry. Good morning. It's going to get better and better, this feature, a different a different <laughs> duo theme tune. I can feel it's really taking off. Uh, Henry, big news. We all, we all, how is everyone marking three, the third anniversary of Keir Starmer becoming uh, uh, Labour leader today? Uh, you've got the front page of the Times. Keir Starmer has vowed to, complete, to be completely ruthless in his pursuit of power as a poll uh, shows that almost half of voters believe he's not set out a clear vision. That's right. So, um, in case you didn't notice from the street parties, uh, <laughs> Keir Starmer is marking three years as leader of the Labour Party today. And look, it is fair to say that um, in April 2020, if you had said to me, or I think probably to you or to Danny, that or Keir possibly Starmer, even to him, or, or probably to him, that Keir Starmer had any chance of becoming Prime Minister within one term, over, one term overturning that 80-seat majority that Boris Johnson won, 
um, I think we'd have laughed. And so on that measure, he has done very well. But the polling that we uh, carry today from YouGov suggests there's more work that he has to do to seal the deal. Uh, and in particular, the thing we've led with is this question of um, what Bill Clinton, I think, used to call the vision thing. Uh, almost half of uh, Britons, you know, therefore including lots of people who are probably planning to vote for him, say he hasn't done enough to set out a clear vision for the Labour Party and what he'd do with the country. Uh, and I think that is something that he and I know his advisers from speaking to them think that they have to fix, to be honest, um, to solidify uh, his prospects of going into number 10. And you got kissed, I'm on the blower yesterday, and he talked you through his three-stage plan to become Prime Minister. And we were sort of all we're sort of at the end of stage two. But explain what the three stages are. Yeah, it's, it, he was much more candid, actually, than I've heard him be before about kind of how he sees his leadership um, you know, playing out. And he said the first stage was change the party and he said he'd been ruthless. He kept using that word, ruthless, uh, about doing that. He identified a few different things. Sacking Jenny Formby, who was Labour's general secretary, a hangover from the Corbyn period. Sacking, although he had not really admitted that he'd done this before, Richard Leonard, uh, the uh, then leader of the Scottish Labour Party. And then he said, barring Jeremy Corbyn from being a candidate again. Those were the three big things he said about changing the party. Then he said stage two was to show the public that the Tories aren't fit to govern. Uh, he slightly ran out of steam when when claiming that he had had anything to do with that. He, he sort of acknowledged, uh, not that begrudgingly, that Liz Truss and Boris Johnson might have had something to they do did, with... they done a with little the, bit of the heavy lifting. Exactly. Um, and then he said he is in stage three now. He said he's in stage three. That's the positive vision thing. Um, and I think, look, you, it would be churlish not to say... Um, that Starmer has, has done anything other than very successfully change the Labour Party, stage one, and stage two has happened. But I think there is an open yeah. question over stage three, and it doesn't necessarily speak to the same skills as stages one and two. Let's just take a listen. We've got a little clip of uh, Henry's interview with Keir Starmer. That has required an absolute focus, not being blown off course by, you know, the very many um, helpful and unhelpful comments from others. Um, a complete ruthlessness. We knew what we had to do with the general secretary. We knew, you know, you know the Scotland, for example, now Sturgeon's gone, that we may have an opportunity to win votes. But frankly, if we hadn't changed the um, leader in Scotland two years ago, uh, we would be at base camp rather than in a position to take advantage of that. Um, we had to take decision in relation to Jeremy. So, the you know, absolute focus, a ruthlessness, but now, um, now very much gunning for the finish. So he's gunning for the finishing line, uh, Danny. Is it the interesting question that, that Henry raises and and Keir Starmer sort of saying, well, I did this at the when he was uh, at the Crown Prosecution Service, getting in, shaking up an organisation. Is it the end of that process? He didn't then have to face a basically a popularity contest. And the skills to get where he is now are different to the ones he needs next? So I, I must say that I never laughed at the idea that he was going to become the next prime minister. And I always thought, as friends of mine who talk to me about it will tell you, from the moment he became leader, I thought he was quite likely to be the next prime minister. And that is because I think people made a big confusion, which is the difference between Labour winning a majority and Labour depriving the Tories of their majority. If the Tories are deprived of their majority, there will be a Labour government and Keir Starmer will be prime minister. It'll just be very difficult, uh, but it will be a Labour government. Getting a majority is altogether uh, a different matter. And I think that is difficult and remains quite difficult. Um, I, 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 
I think that the Tories have made it much worse for themselves, but that also was predictable because not to think that would happen would be to think that Boris Johnson would go through five years uh, in office not doing any of the things that he's done repeatedly throughout his um, political career, which is to cap, or indeed his professional career, which is to capsize himself regularly. Um, so, yeah, I, I think um, that uh, he was always likely to become prime minister, and I'm much less fixed than most people on this question of how much vision he's got. Sure, I think it would make governing easier, and I think it would help with winning a majority to some extent. What people really want to know is, um, is it safe to vote Labour? That's the key thing he That's has to do. It is reassurance, reassurance, reassurance the whole time. And I, I wouldn't, I would, I think people don't believe visions. They don't really comprehend them. Um, they, they think a lot of them are total the rhetoric. Uh, the policies you end up creating are often silly ones that you then can't do when you're in office. So I'm a bit of a visiono skeptic. <laughs> Another new one. It was a wish of file we had last week, a vision of sceptic this week. Um, and Henry, let's, let's not muck about. I mean, it is extraordinary. They are still 20 points ahead in the polls, albeit Keir Starmer is only just ahead of Rishi Sunak on the question of who would make the best prime minister. And this is a lot of progress from when you have asked the same questions in 2021. So we shouldn't probably get too hung up on it, that it, you know, finding fault for, for the sake of it. Yeah, I mean, look, ultimately, as things stand, Keir Starmer's going to be prime minister <laughs> and... Clearly, therefore, people are happy to vote for him in spite of uh, whatever misgivings they may or may not have because those clearly aren't the dominant factors in, in forming um, how they vote. I mean, like, look, I do think... Um, I, I, I think I'm a bit of a visiono sceptic as well, um, particularly having sat through Keir Starmer's missions speeches, uh, <laughs> of which I'm afraid there's three more to come. Uh, and um, Scra- I don't think you're those... You're scratching them off. You've got like a wall chart. You scratch them <laughs> off as you, they each come back. But, I mean, I suppose the problem is, if you say, do you know what Keir Starmer's vision is? That doesn't really matter. But on the breakdown, all of the questions from you, Gov, you know, do you do you know what he wants to do with education? Do you want to know what law and order? If people start getting the... You know, we get it all the time in our focus groups, and we may be recording another one uh, tonight, so we'll hear that on Thursday. We'll probably get it again. They don't know what he's all about. And if you don't know what he's all about, Danny, there's th- that's when you get into the question of whether or not it's safe. Okay, but who knows what education policy is now? I don't mean that as a... I don't mean that, as, by the way, as a sort of piercing piece of political satire or scathing <laughs> on Gillian Keegan. I just mean people aren't across most things. Now, yeah, yeah. when you've got secondary school children or your children in university or, you know, like mine, I had three children in state schools at one point and I was very fixed on what was the curriculum policy and what was the policy. You know, I, I understood it. But most of the time, most and, and of course now I understand it as a political commentator, but most of the time, most people, they're not across what Keir Starmer, you know, very few people will be able to name for you who Shadow Education Secretary is, um, let alone um, what their policy is. And the election is not going to be determined by knowing that. That's a very good point. I mean, I think I think one other point um, that occurred to me while I was while I was interviewing Keir Starmer yesterday, um, he did talk, as as Matt alluded to earlier, he talked about his experience of turning around uh, the Crown Prosecution Service. He talked about coming in, having a fixed five-year term, working out what the problems were. And it it, it sort of reminded me a bit, and stay with me here, of David Cameron when he said, why did he want to be Prime Minister? Well, he said because he thought he'd be quite good at it. I think that's, I mean, he would never articulate it in those terms. I think that's basically the Keir Starmer prospectus for for government, is that he, he thinks he'd be good at it. 
Yeah, Henry, I, I and and you know, I'm influenced by the fact I defended that um, position. Um, I thought it was the the right one. I think that. Um, creating a lot of policies in opposition. I'm influenced by the fact that I was the director of policy for the Conservative Party in opposition under William Hague. We probably had fewer people in our policy unit than the government has looking after the regulation of carpets. And um, <laughs> you know, as a whole, it, and creating coherent, sensible policy was extremely difficult. And what I worry about, you know, is not politicians getting into office and not doing what they say they were gonna, they're going to do. I worry that they do do what they say they're going to do. But and what they do, what they say they're going to do is developed in opposition, often influenced by lobby groups or interest groups who have more research back up than they do. So I do think it's important to understand very broadly where Keir Starmer, where Keir Starmer is, who he is as a politician. I'm not sure he completely understands that himself, and I'm not sure I completely understand it. For most of my life, and I've known Keir, I've known of Keir Starmer since my early 20s, and he has always been quite substantially to the left of me. Uh, right, and in the last two years, he has definitely portrayed himself as moving quite sharply in my direction. You might say I moved a little bit towards him, but he certainly moved uh, <laughs> quite a bit towards me. And the question is, is that a real move? Is that a tactical move? Um, uh, what? How will that? How will that fare when events happen? Mm. Uh, you know, for example, he's talked about. Um, needing a kind of newer deal with the European Union, but at the same time, his new position is, you know, we're not going to negotiate anything. Uh, we're not going to sort of move towards the single market. How will it fare when he has to choose between those things? It's an interesting uh, point there. And, and actually, whether or not that move, which is the real, you know, with the real key stuff is please stand up. And probably it was the earlier one rather than the later one, and whether or not he moves back when he, uh, if and when he gets in the government. Uh, Henry, let's go back to uh, let's go back to America, where you were for the 2020 election campaign. Uh, is Donald Trump going to be able to turn being the first former president to be charged into an election-winning gambit? Uh, depends which election you're talking about, I think. I think it probably does help him in the Republican primary, ridiculously, uh, but it does. Um, I've met many of these people who will be sort of buoyed into defence of Donald Trump and rally to his side. And you can see in the fact that um, his his emergent rivals, principally Ron DeSantis, uh, are criticising the indictment rather than the behaviour underlying the indictment. Uh, you can see that dynamic playing out already. Um, but I think it's only bad news for him as and when it comes to, or if and when it comes to him, facing off against Joe Biden presidential election because the other American voters that I've met lots of, um, and the evidence bears this out, is is people who voted for him in 2016 but got fed up of the drama and worse that followed him. Uh, and this is only going to entrench that that view, that reason that they switched to Joe Biden in 2020, I think. Um, what do you think, Danny? It's a pretty extraordinary... As a single episode to sum up how mad American politics is, that... Uh, being charged could boost your internal party campaign. Yeah, I, I think that there's another aspect of it which is not really to do with Donald Trump, which is that the American uh, election system, a uh, legal system, is just incredibly politicised. Mm. We just had an incident here in which a group of people said that they don't want to uh, prosecute um, or, or uh, prosecute fossil fuel protesters and. Um, 
that is to sort of ignore the cab cab rank rule where they have to take on whatever case comes to them. Uh, and what they're doing is kind of saying we ought to have a more politicised uh, legal system, more politicised lawyers, uh, even than we've got. And I think that this illustrates why that's such a mistake, because Donald Trump is being partially prosecuted because he definitely committed what looks like it was a crime, but he's also partially being prosecuted because Alvin Bragg in New York is a Democrat. Uh, and um, he, he is not prosecuting this neutrally, in my opinion, even if you sympathise with this. And this, by the way, comes from somebody who regards Donald Trump as probably the most dangerous person in the world. Uh, so, uh, and and uh, pretty much the worst politician I've ever come across. So it's not out of sympathy for him. Um, but I think it's problem the system they've got it was yeah. completely staggering to me when i got to america I, I wasn't really aware of this of quite how politicized um the legal system is uh, and it's not just that in many states uh, and many localities attorneys prosecutors are elected in some states supreme court judges are elected obviously we know the federal supreme court um has a highly politicized appointments process but actually right down to you know random 20 or 30-something lawyers that I met, they will work for either a red firm, i.e. a Republican law firm, mm. or a blue firm, i.e. a Democrat law firm, which takes the particular ideological cases that that, that aligns to. And I just found that completely mind-boggling. And, and it would be so terrible if the UK followed that path. Uh, finally then, um, because we'll see how all that pans out later when he's uh, when he is officially arrested and then uh, gives a speech on why that's an excellent thing to have happened to him. Um, uh, Nigel Lawson uh, has died at the age of uh, 91. Lots of tributes around to him today. Uh, Danny, did you uh, bump into him much in the House of Lords? Yes, uh, well, before that as well. Um, mm. I, I think uh, Nigel Lawson is unquestionably one of the most consequential and impressive politicians of the 20th century, uh, and um, uh, and I'm very sorry that he has died. Um, I'm glad that it was as late as at 1991, and that uh, sorry, as, as at the age of 91, and it, and that does not come from me agreeing with him about everything. I thought he was, uh, I I I think he was um, went too far on climate change. I thought he was wrong about Brexit, and I didn't always agree with him even in office. Uh, but broadly, as a as a believer in uh, liberal market capitalism and uh, his understanding of the role and limits of the state, um, I thought he was bold and serious uh, and intellectually important and politically highly consequential, a very impressive individual. One of the things, Danny, that really struck me, particularly reading his Times obituary today, is that in order to do what he did, uh, um, he needed to be long-term uh, thinking, strategy, getting the economy into shape before, or, or at least Margaret Thatcher did, before he was then able to embark on on uh, the tax cuts, the big tax cuts and obviously the big bang and everything that followed. Um, you know, that took years and years and years, turning, you know, treating the country like an oil tanker rather than a, I don't know, a unicycle, as Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng tried to last year. I think he was deeply serious individual. I remember he had a conversation with uh, George Osborne when uh, George became Chancellor about the right and spending. And um, he said to George, you don't have to worry about the right um, pushing you for too many tax cuts. What you have to worry about is the right pushing you to spend too much. Um, <laughs> and, and, he was, and he was correct. And he, he believed that, you know, that, that spending actually ought to become, be a product of what the economy could deliver. Um, and he was also believed that the Reagan deficit policies were the wrong ones. 
it was Nigel Lawson's policy was not the one pursued by Liz Truss. Mm. The one the one pursued by Liz Truss was Reaganite. R- D- Nigel Lawson was a Thatcherite. Those are not the same things. And Henry, I suppose it's a reminder that it is possible, as Danny's saying there, to admire some, what someone achieved, agree with some of it, but you don't have to, you know, it's saying that he uh, had an enormous impact on politics of the last century, essentially. It's not the same as I agreed with everything he's had to say on climate change. Yeah, and it's it, uh, the other thing that I was thinking this morning, I mean, it's some years since I um, read Lawson's memoir, Memoirs of a Tory Radical, which is brilliant. But I think it's also, at least in my edition, sort of well over a thousand pages long. And I'm... I don't know. Perhaps perhaps we always look back with rose-tinted spectacles, especially in my case, to an era where I literally wasn't alive. But I'm not sure there are that many politicians these days who could summon up a 1,200-page um, justification of their political philosophy, let alone have a political philosophy. And I think that's a shame. Henry Zeffman and Danny Finkelstein there. And you can read the stories we were discussing. Just hit the links in the podcast description. And to read them, you just need to get yourself subscribed to The Times. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash timesmedbox. Up next... We go back to 1984 and the Brighton bombing. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast now. It's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. At 2.54am on October the 12th, 1984, a £25 bomb exploded under a bath in room 629 of the Grand Hotel in Brighton. On the last night of the Conservative Party conference, an attempt by the IRA to kill Margaret Thatcher and her government. A huge gash tore through the hotel even people who've been sleeping moments before, buried alive in the rubble. Good evening. Four people are dead and dozens injured after the bomb at the Conservative Party Hotel in Brighton. But the IRA failed in what they set out to do. They were trying to murder the Prime Minister and most of the British Cabinet as they slept. But Mrs Thatcher escaped death by minutes. She'd been in her bathroom two minutes before it was blown apart. That was a BBC report in the hours after the attack. And all five people died and many more were injured, including Norman Tebbit and his wife, who was paralysed from the chest down. Thatcher herself climbed out of the rubble and without, within hours was vowing the show must go on. Um, you hear about these atrocities, these bombs. You don't expect them to happen to you. But 
Life must go on as usual. And your conference will go on. Conference will go on. The conference, all right, all right, John. The conference will go on as usual. And it did extraordinarily, though politics was changed forever. But who planted the bomb? How did it get there? And how did the police eventually catch the man who carried out what was described as the more, most audacious attack on a British government since the gunpowder plot? It's been pieced together by the journalist Rory Carroll in an extraordinary new book, Killing Thatcher, which reads like a real-life thriller. And I'm delighted that Rory joins me now. Hi, Rory. Hey, good morning. Uh, it's great to have you with us. Before we, get, we dive into the, the detail of it, um, explain how you pieced to, to get the book together, how many people you've spoken to, um, uh, and uh, how long it's been in the, in the works for. It's been in the works for about um, three and a half years. Interviewed more than 100 people, um, ex-IRA men, ex-conservative um, politicians, people close to Thatcher, and especially police, um, Scotland Yard, anti-terrorist detectives, the Sussex detectives who uh, led the investigation, um, bomb disposal people. Um, but the key to it really was getting ex-IRA men. And, and explain for us from the perspective of, of the IRA, why they wanted to do this. Take us back to the politics, the situation, the late 80, late seventies, early eighties, and why this Margaret Thatcher in particular was not just unpopular with the army; she was loathed by them. Yeah, this was intensely personal. Margaret Thatcher, since the hunger strikes of 1981, she was blamed for the fact that ten Irish Republican prisoners, starting with Bobby Sands, starved themselves to death. They were seeking political status. And Margaret Thatcher refused to, to bend to that. And so they started to die one by one. And this was a very traumatic um, episode in Irish history. And at the end of it, she, Margaret Thatcher, was kind of vaulted into the, the, into the ranks of, of demons, of, you know, of Irish Republican demonology. She was right up there with Oliver Cromwell from the 17th century. And so they thought, we need, we want revenge. And that was a big part of it. And that's why they invested such time and effort into going after her. The other reason was the Troubles, who were about 14 years in, had reached a bloody stalemate. Uh, the IRA realized they would not be able to push the British military into the sea. And yet they were also remained undefeated themselves. So what was going to change? And so I think they hoped that by, by wiping out not just Thatcher, but a lot of her government, that somehow this could kind of change the strategic calculus. And explain how the plot uh, there went, therefore went from idea to reality. And in particular, Patrick McGee, the man responsible who planted the bomb there, not he wasn't even he was far from the IOA's first choice. Yes, well, they, they had a whole team of people who started doing surveillance, um, checking out Conservative Party conferences um, in 1982, 1983, also in Blackpool. Where they were studying the, you know, the behaviour of, of, of the Tory Party conference, the rhythm of the week, what were the security protocols, what were the police doing, not doing. So they were really having a good idea of what was, you know, to, to do their homework. They also they sent a construction engineer to Brighton to study the architecture of the Grand Hotel, which was to be the designated tomb of the Conservative Party. And they then had a, one of the best bomb makers in Dublin. Uh, customize a bomb that would be small, compact, but powerful. They also tested their timers because that, the timers were crucial. They needed the timer to kind of time it to the, to the very second that they wanted. And once they had all this in place, the last link in the chain was Patrick McGee, who was a very experienced uh, veteran bomb maker and bomb planter, 
who was well known to security forces, which is why he would not have been the first choice, really, because he was, to use IRA terminology, a red light, meaning that they, there was a thick file on McGee in Scotland Yard. Um, but they ran out of other options because um, these security forces were picking off other IRA operators. And so McGee was the designated last link in the chain. And he was the one responsible for checking into the hotel three weeks before the Tory party conference and posing as an Englishman, which he could did very well. And he could do a good English accent and checking into a sea facing room and there spending three days and three nights assembling, planting, concealing the bomb. Uh, that check-in was crucial because he, uh, and, and you tell it so uh, um, starkly and dramatically in the book, checking in, trying to be as anonymous as possible so no one would remember him and he would leave no trace, including, he thought, no fingerprints. That's right. And remember, this was another era in that, um, firstly, he didn't even make a reservation. Um, he didn't use a credit card. He paid cash up front. He didn't need to show ID. And he gave a false name, of course, a false address. And the, the key thing was to not leave any trace was to, yeah, to not touch the registration card. So he would have practiced this in advance to try to like, and it's not easy, you know, to, you know, the receptionist hands you a card, you know, how do you not touch it, you know? Um, and so, but he almost managed it, you know, he, and all he, he ended up leaving were, was a, a fragment of a pamphlet on the card. Now, this was a, a fateful um, act um, or omission on, on, on his part. And so, so much of the of the plot, if you like, kind of hinges on that. And so he go. We'll come on to to that and how they ended up finally catching him in a moment. But why why did he end up in room six two nine? Because presumably you can't. He couldn't just turn up and start saying, "Well, I, I really do need a room in this part of the hotel on this floor in this place." Because that would that's the sort of behaviour which would draw attention to him. Yes. Well, they had they did phone in advance the day before and that day to make sure there was availability. And but then when he checked in, he asked for a sea facing room because he knew that Margaret Thatcher would be given a sea facing suite. And they had the IRIC had a matrix of which rooms would work in terms of the bomb, like where they could plant. And so and it turned out that the receptionist um, offered him 629, which was within the matrix of, you know, of acceptable bombing rooms. So he didn't need to kind of negotiate and go, oh, well, actually, could I have this other room down the corridor or whatever? Yeah. You know, she, they, and so that was good chance. enough. Yeah. And then you, you mentioned this was three weeks before. So what did he then spend his time doing in, in the room? He was there for three nights. And how could they be so confident that they could leave literally a ticking bomb in the hotel for three weeks before the moment they, they were sure that Margaret Thatcher was going to be in the hotel? He well, he'd been doing this um, for um, over a decade, and so he's very accomplished, very meticulous in in what he did, and he had three days, three nights to do it. And in fact, the bomb was not only assembled, but he had the the it was connected to the timer, and it was activated on his on his second last night there. So he slept in that room with the bomb already activated, um, and the pulse of the timer was pulsing away quietly. So had he made a mistake in the, the circuits, I mean, he could have blown himself up, but that's how confident he was. And he then checked out where well, he ordered uh, some vodkas and Cokes um, for his last night. And then he checked out the, the next morning and he just disappeared. And he, you know, he, he basically he was a ghost. And then how was it that the, 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 there was no checks 
but I mean, these days when I go to party conferences, there's a ring of steels thrown around the, the venue for, for, I think, probably weeks in advance and endless sort of security checks and so on. Was there any sort of security sweep of the whole hotel before the entire British government essentially moved in? No. And that was one of the astonishing things in the research of this. It, you know, it's just a reminder that this was such another era, not that long ago, and yet a complete other, arguably more innocent era, mm. that the police were worried um, about striking miners. They felt that this was the height of the miners' strike, that it was Arthur Scargill and busloads of miners coming down. And that's why the Brighton was saturated with police. And, but, but they did not think about that the IRA might plant a time bomb. And in hindsight, it's, it's kind of like, well, they should have, because they already knew that the IRA had these timers, these very pre- precise timers, which were taken from um, cannibalized VCR recorders. That's what they used. And the army, the British army, had n- done a report in the mid-70s saying the IRA have got these really precise timers. They can plant a bomb months in advance, and they could use this to target a VIP. This was in, in, in an British Army report, I think, from 1976. And yet, it, yeah. you know, there was so much else happening. And I think what it was was a failure of imagination on the part of the, the security forces, because no one had attempted to take out a prime minister and to wipe out a whole government since Guy Fawkes, yeah. since the gunpowder plot of 1605. So it was that sense, you know, the, the scale of it, of the ambition of it, just, it didn't, it, 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 you know, the security forces didn't grasp that. So take us then um, into the the, the, the the night that the bomb went off. Margaret Thatcher has been doing the rounds at the party conferences, worrying about her speech, but socialising and dancing at a ball and so on. She goes up to her room to work on her speech. Just take us through those final moments before and then after the bomb went off. Yeah, she and she always did this to her to her, um, her um, speechwriters. That you know, she agonised over her speech, and so they're there till about half two in the morning, um, sitting in her in the Napoleon suite in the in her lounge, working through the final draft. Finally, at around two forty a.m., you know, the the speech is done. The speechwriters leave. She takes a bathroom break. She then returns, and she's still not done. Um, being Margaret Thatcher and the workaholic that she was. She decides to like, let's do some more government business. And so with one other civil servant, they start going through the, the, a report about the flower show, funding of the Liverpool flower show at you know, 2.54 a.m. is what they're doing. Um, and that was the moment of detonation. That was when she heard just like a, a thud and then the, the hotel shook, plaster fell down from her ceiling, a glass panel uh, shattered. Um, and unknown to her, meantime, the this, the rooms on the sixth floor have been obliterated in that explosion and the blast wave has gone upwards where it has shredded the roof and there it has topples a five-ton chimney stack of Victorian masonry that now begins to plunge through the heart of the hotel. Now, this was really the real weapon that the IRA used. It wasn't so much the bomb. The bomb was the trigger for turning that chimney into a homicidal avalanche that that crashed through floor by floor by floor, sweeping everything into this vortex of kind of masonry and ceiling and furniture and human beings um, right down to the basement. Now, Thatcher, it clipped. It, Thatcher's two ways Thatcher almost died here. One, had she still been in her bathroom, the, the avalanche kind of clipped that room and it shredded her bathroom. So there's flying tiles, masonry, glass, 
and she would have been, certainly been seriously injured. She might have died had she still been in the bathroom. As it was, she was in her armchair about yeah. 12 feet away. But even there, she might have died because the avalanche at one point looked like it would have gone straight down and could have kind of crashed right through the ceiling and entombed her right there in the armchair where she was sitting. But as it turned out, it swerved and it kind of took out the, the adjacent rooms all the way down. And that's what saved Thatcher. It was so, so close. Um, uh, an extraordinary, like you said, so many tiny uh, fragments as they were falling, building up this avalanche. It's such an um, uh, evocative word. But it was it's so incredibly close and it was purely luck, really, that, that, that meant that she survived. We're still joined by the author and journalist Rory Cowell. We're remembering the Brighton bombing in October 1984, the subject of Rory's new book, ripping through the Grand Hotel. Five people would die. Many more would be injured. Margaret Thatcher, the IRA's target, climbed over rubble to escape. She spent what was left of the night praying and napping fitfully at a police training college before determinedly returning to the Conservative conference stage. The bomb attack on the Grand Hotel early this morning was first and foremost an inhuman, undiscriminating attempt to massacre innocent unsuspecting men and women staying in Brighton for our Conservative Conference. And the fact that we are gathered here now, shocked, but composed and determined, is a sign not only that this attack has failed, but that all attempts to destroy democracy by terrorism will fail. <laughs> And then she went on to deliver much what of the, the speech she'd planned to. Philip Webster was there reporting for The Times. Phil, of course, a former uh, political editor of The Times. Phil, um, what do you remember of, well, first of all, waking up in Brighton to this, this extraordinary um, devastation, but then Margaret Thatcher choosing to, to go back onto the conference stage? Well, it was the most uh, amazing night. Most, uh, most journalists, of course, would have been in the bar of the Grand, uh, earlier that evening, it was the last night of the conference season, and Matt, you know what they are like. Uh, you're very relieved to get to the end of the conference uh, run, and we would all have been in there. I think most journalists would have been in the bar till after midnight, and then after bed. The previous year, Cecil Parkinson had resigned in the middle of the last night of the conference season. There was a certain weariness about being on top of the game for the next morning. <laughs> um, and yes, I mean, waking up to uh, this terrible shock, um, the instinct of all journalists, of course, is to call the office and, uh, and to tell them that something's going on, pre-mobile phones, not that easy to get through. Most of us had people still on our night desks and uh, we were all trying to get a, a word or two into the paper at that late stage. Um, it was an astonishing night. Of course, none of us went, uh, went back to bed. And Thatcher herself, um, you know, typical defiance. They arranged for Marks and Spencer in Brighton to open at eight o'clock in the morning. Uh, so that the people who had to file out of the uh, the Grand at least had some clothes to wear for the speech. She was very quickly out there saying the conference would go ahead. Um, she, she must have known, of course, that she was uh, a vulnerable. 
Um, her great friend, Airy Neve, was killed mm -hmm. in, a, in an IRA bomb. Uh, her PPS, Ian Gao, had been killed by a car bomb a couple of years earlier. She must have known that at some stage the IRA would, would come for her. But her, her defiance on the morning after was rather typical. It, it was a reminder of the Falkland spirit for her. It did her no harm. Um, as, as, as we were just saying there, it was the time of the miners' strike, and uh, it didn't do her any harm in the battle that was going on with Arthur Scargill at the time. But the speech itself uh, was quite remarkable. Um, uh, she did leave out the usual attacks on the Labour Party, but otherwise it was very much business as usual. Um, it was shorter than usual so that they could get away from uh, Brighton as quickly as possible. And Roy Camel, bringing you back in, obviously at this moment you've got the Prime Minister on stage delivering an almost conventional party conference speech talking about foreign affairs and unemployment and, and so on, but there's an enormous police operation underway to try and catch the people who did this. And for a while it looked like the IRA might get away with it. It did, because they, I mean, there was an intelligence vacuum. The intelligence agencies did not know, you know, who had done it, had heard no chatter. I mean, for once, the IRA had really kept a really tight lid on this. And so they were just starting from, from nothing, really. And one of the remarkable things is that the investigation was led by, not by Scotland Yard, but by a Sussex detective, the head of CID, Jack Rees, who had no experience of the IRA, no experience of bombs, and he was on the verge of retirement. But he stayed on um, to do this one last case and fell on his shoulders to lead this mammoth investigation, which on, on one part of it was going combing through the ruins of the Grand Hotel, trying to extract uh, any fragments or clues about you know, the nature of the bomb, um, which they did. They were able to kind of reconstruct uh, part of the, the bomb. But what was crucial there was that they found in the basement the hotel registration cards, which had survived the uh, the explosion, and there they they went through um, all the the registration cards, and they very quickly focused in on one uh, from three weeks earlier. Um, uh, Roy Walsh had signed in to for room six two nine, and this was when, you know, the likely seat of the explosion, and it also kind of fitted what they thought was the timer because there was um, they guessed that the, the the timer had been for three weeks. Mm. And so they, it, the investigation hinged on, well, who is Roy Walsh? And so they, they didn't know. I mean, they did an appeal on Crime Watch, um, and they, but they simply didn't know until January 1985. So this is now four months later. That finally, Scotland Yard were able to do a match, and they found that the, there was a fragment of a pamphlet on the card which matched that of Patrick McGee, who was caught trying to break into a butcher shop in Norwich in 1967. Uh, he was at that time a teenager, teenage tearaway, um, who was, uh, had left his home in, in West Belfast and was staying in Norwich. But he then subsequently became an IRA man and had a bulging file by then. But it was that print that Norwich police took from the 1960s that was matched with the card of the Grand Hotel. So now they knew, okay, well, now we know who the bomber was. Yeah. But he was unreachable. They, they discovered he was staying in Dublin, in Ballymun, a working class estate. And they didn't think they would be able to extradite him. So they tried to keep him under watch, under surveillance here, using the Irish police uh, services for that. 
but it didn't work because after a few after a few months in 1985, McGee suddenly disappeared again. I mean, they'd lost him. He disappeared, and they didn't know where he was. And um, Rory, you got to speak to Patrick McGee as part of doing this this book. What does was his reflections on this now, almost forty years later? He reminds me a bit of Ham, like Hamlet, really. I mean, he's sorry, not sorry. Um, he he's apologised for the the regret he he caused, or for the the suffering he inflicted, but he still defends the, the 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 IRA bombing and the IRA campaign as legitimate and justified acts of war. So his own kind of moral code is kind of it's kind of a, a very murky grey area. Mm. He himself is a very soft-spoken man now in his 70s. He walks with a limp, which is the legacy of a, a shooting. He was shot in the leg by loyalists in an attack that predating Brighton. Um, he's got arthritis. He walks with a cane. He lives in Belfast very quietly, keeps himself to himself. And um, even for an IRA man, I mean, within the IRA circles, he's known as a, as a quiet one. <laughs> and, you know, he but he's, he has had this remarkable second act. I mean, since he was released under the terms of the Good Friday Agreement in 1999, he has struck up a remarkable friendship with Joe Berry. She was the daughter of Sir Anthony Berry, who was the uh, conservative MP and I think Deputy Chief Whip who died in the bombing. And she reached out to him, and they, after he was released, and they've struck up this really um, astonishing rapport and friendship over the past 20 years. And just finally, uh, Phil, this is a, a moment in, in history which changed British politics. It changed certainly how party conferences are, are, are kept mm. secure. But also, you know, as we, we approach the anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement, you know, Patrick McGee is a, is a free man, because, you know, things moved on and times changed and he was one of those released by that political settlement to try and end what had become such a, such a bloody conflict. Yes, it, it, it shows again why uh, keeping the Good Friday Agreement has been, into, been so important uh, to Rishi Sunak uh, right up to this day and his recent uh, negotiation um, of, of the accord to deal with the Northern Ireland Protocol. It changed a lot of things. It may well have changed the future leadership of the Tory party. There's no doubt that at that time, if you had to choose a potential successor to Margaret Thatcher, it might well have been Norman Tebbett. But the whole, uh, the, the fact that he was injured, but his wife was very severely injured, and he devoted the rest of his life to looking after his wife, um, it changed everything for Norman Tebbett, and he, uh, the, the chances of him becoming Tory leader after that mm. had really had really gone. So it it had an amazing impact on the future. There were other bombings, but it was one of those events that I suppose, in the end, contributed to people uh, first under Major then under Blair talking to the IRA and getting to the Good Friday Agreement and getting some semblance of peace in Northern Ireland. Phil, really good to speak to you. Phil Webster, former, former political editor of the Times. And uh, Rory, it's such a it's such a terrific read about, I, I confess, one of those events in politics, well, I was two at the time, so um, I didn't, you know, I obviously don't remember it, I'm aware that it happened, but what an extraordinary uh, account of in, you know, relatively recent history in, in politics or something that's happened. So Rory Carroll, really good to speak to you. 
you. Thank you, Matt. It's been, it's been a pleasure. Good to speak to you. And uh, Killing Thatcher by uh, Rory Cowell is uh, is out today. Um, and uh, if you're interested in uh, in British politics, I literally can't uh, can't recommend it enough. It's an absolutely extraordinary uh, read. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. And we bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcast from. Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Albert styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely their fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Try the Superlight Tree Runner with a cushy foam midsole and breathable eucalyptus fiber upper. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. So, what can you do in a Superlight shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24.